Hello, and welcome to the 2016 Presidential Elections Podcast with Dr. Gary Rose. This podcast is brought to you by ShoeSquare, Sacred Heart University's virtual teaching and learning commons. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's election 2016. We're going to be contemplating the beginnings of the Trump presidency as after he shockingly swept last week's election. And this is also our last episode. This nine, ten month journey has come to an end. We've been thrilled to be here with all of you. And wow, could we not have asked for a more shocking conclusion to this very long election season. Well, Bridget, yeah, this is our last podcast. And um, let me just say uh, right up front here. I preface my comments by noting that it's been a real pleasure to to work with you on doing these, and hopefully our listeners have uh, found our podcasts uh, interesting, enlightening, educational, and uh, the last we looked, we were reaching uh, approximately 50 countries, isn't that right? 50 countries. So, yeah, it's been a long journey, and we began uh, actually before the Iowa caucus. We followed through all of the nominating battles that took place within both parties, we uh, covered the conventions and then, of course, the general election. And now we are conducting a post-election podcast, which is our very last one. I will tell you this, um, like so many other political science professors, so many other pundits, so many other prognosticators, um, I was among those who thought Hillary was probably going to win. I think most places had her like 90% I think so, yeah. It was incredible. I mean, I was looking at the polls, not so much nationally, but I was looking at the polls on a state-by-state basis. I knew there'd be some very close elections, like in Florida and North Carolina, but never once did I think that Donald Trump would actually break the, uh, the blue wall in the Rust Belt, which he did. Very enormously so. Yes, and from all indications, uh, it's not just Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but he was able to win back Ohio, of course, Indiana, and also apparently it looks like Michigan's going to break his way now, even though it's not official. So, yeah, you know, we had a, uh, essentially what happened in this country is we had, I think, a, um, in many ways, um, a populist uprising in certain states, white working class voters, Um, who have, I should say, been migrating to the Republican Party um, over the years, really, uh, I think, really altered the outcome of this contest. And many of them were were Democrats, union members as well, which is very surprising out there among those Rust Belt states who have, who essentially were, I guess, receptive to Trump's message of restoring jobs in that part of the country uh, who have seen manufacturing jobs head south as a result of NAFTA, who have seen um, jobs being outsourced to other countries. And I believe that Trump really spoke to those people. Now, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Now, we've had these populist uprisings in the past. This is not the first in American history. And I should note that uh, the election of Andrew Jackson back in 1828 and which extended into the 30s of course the whole Jacksonian revolution was in some respects a populist uprising so 
you can't say that this is just purely uh, you know the first time and unprecedented. But Jackson himself, a um, even he was a military officer, but in many ways he was perceived as an outsider. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like Trump in a way. I know Trump very different in terms of their backgrounds, but nevertheless. Uh, Jackson, too, wanted to uh, shake up business as usual, as usual, and he took on a very uh, established elite from the East Coast. Um, look, two-thirds of the American people said that the nation was on the wrong track, two-thirds, and that they wanted change. And many Americans are very, very um, unhappy with um, the way this country has been heading in many ways, economically, there are a good number of Americans that are concerned about um, social developments, uh, moral developments in, in this in our country, foreign policy concerns, and in the end, uh, Donald Trump was the um, in, was really the one offering a clarion call for you know draining the swamp, as they say, and and initiating major changes in so many so many areas of our country, you know, again, beyond just the economy, just the way we do business politically, too. And so I think this really was one of these big historic elections that really, I know he didn't win the popular vote, but nevertheless, change was in the air. And um, and certainly Trump, um, I think, uh, was able to mobilize those sentiments very, very effectively. And I think this is really nice that we're actually doing this podcast a, a, a good week after the election because we're seeing sort of the beginnings of what Trump's cabinet, what Trump's um, administration will look like. So far, we've had very few definite confirmations so far, very few nominations so far, but we have had a few names floating around. What does it say to you that he's kind of picking people for some unorthodox ro- roles? We see like Rudy Giuliani, who himself said, like, I want to be attorney general. He's now in the running for Secretary of Secretary State. Secretary of State. Uh, we have his son-in-law, Jared, or, yeah. Kirshner. Kirshner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirshner uh, being considered for an administration post as well. People who really are either yeah. coming from way outside their expertise or their role in government before or coming from outside in the business world. Yeah, I know. There are some unusual, um, I can't say they're nominated yet, but it looks like some unusual nominations are forthcoming mm-hmm. for some of these individuals. Um yeah, what does it all mean? You know, I, I think what it means is that uh, Trump simply does not want your typical political insiders to do, you know, the type of business that that we that we associate insiders with. And so, yeah, I, I suppose you know you could say that Giuliani, as a State Department secretary, is really unorthodox. There's there's no question about that. Um, and maybe it does send you know sort of that message that that Trump is just tired of having the same type of perspective, you know, um, in, in these key cabinet posts. And so he's bringing in people with maybe, uh, although Rudy, I will say, Rudy is very known throughout the world. You know, he has an international consulting firm and so forth, mm-hmm. and he's been to many countries. But nevertheless, it's, it's not by any means the same, the same genre of, of individual that seems to be um, up for some of these positions. And now I know he's talking about Ted Cruz as a potential attorney general. Yeah. I mean, that's really quite remarkable. And, and, and as you mentioned, Rudy uh, for um, Secretary of State. And then we have Bannon, you know, appointed as the, uh, essentially the political director. Chief of strategist. The chief strategist of the White House. Yeah, again, very unorthodox. You know, Trump said he was going to do things differently. And 
if these um, names that are being floated about are any indication of, of that, then he's following through on his word. It seems to be a primary feature in Trump's management style that he likes to kind of create tribes and sort of pit them against each other, which we kind of yeah. see shaping up a little bit in his White House already, with, as you said, with Bannon as his chief strategist and uh, Reince Priebus as his chief of staff. Those are two very different people, two very different voices, two very different factions of the Republican Party. H- has that played out before in the White House? Do you yeah, usually Roosevelt have? actually made appointments that way, uh, mm-hmm. and it was to kind of divide and conquer. Now, uh, again, I'm not willing to go so far as to say that that really is a master strategy on, <laughs> on Trump's part. This is so early still. Yeah. You know, it really is. Who knows? Who knows who, in the end, is going to be nominated? But if, in fact... Um, well, you mentioned Priebus and Bannon. That is interesting because they are, in many ways, uh, I don't want to say polar opposites of one another, but certainly their approach is different and their, their, even their political values are different. Mm-hmm. And yet those, uh, those two individuals seem to be, you know, they're going to have the president's ear, that's for sure. So I don't know if he's going to be intentionally um, nominating individuals who will be rivals with one another, you know, the old divide and conquer strategy. Roosevelt was known for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, there's, there have been, you know, Roosevelt scholars who have suggested that was one way in which he was able to manage different factions within the party by, by kind of pitting them against one another. And then he would be the, uh, you know, the, 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 the mediator. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll see. It's early. You know, uh, a lot of people think that these individuals should be nominated by now, but I saw a chart just this morning on television to just show how how so many cabinet posts are are, are appointed even after the president mm-hmm. is inaugurated. Well, then you know the president I mean? has to nominate like four thousand people. Well, there's yeah four thousand appointees. I mean, he's not going to get into the real micro appointees, you know. But even the top even the top uh, secretaries, these these fifteen cabinet positions and members of the White House position like Office of Management and Budget. Um, Council of Economic Advisors. Um, many of these people may not actually be uh, be known or or nominated or, or or finally appointed. Who knows until February, March? You know, mm-hmm. after he's in office, just takes a while this transition. This is a long process we're going to be seeing, and yeah. of course, I think I think in some ways even Donald Trump was shocked him on Tuesday night. So in some ways, I'm wondering how much of a plan he had in place. Because yeah. um, like we said in the beginning of the podcast, most places, 538, CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, most of them had Clinton's chance of winning at anywhere from 70 to 90%. I know. I know. I saw that uh, Nate Silver had, what, a 70% chance yeah. that, that Hillary was going to win the election. I know that fluctuated a little bit, but... And then you mentioned the New York Times had what? What did you say? Was a ninety percent? I don't think it was. Uh, was some places high? were up to ninety percent. It was way up I think five thirty-eight even had it up to ha- edging up one, towards ninety. At one time, towards election night, it was hedging up towards ninety. Oh, did it keep it going up? Yeah. yeah. I know they they all they all predicted it, and um, Professor Larry Sabato, of course, in his crystal ball. I mean, there's a major um, you know figure in terms of. The media often reached out to him for some, you know, and his analyses are fabulous, let's face it, but he too. Missed the mark. Yeah, yeah, he too missed it, right. So I'm going to ask you the dreaded question that's on everyone's mind. What went wrong? How did people call this incorrectly? Yeah. So enormously so. The polls missed it. They did. That's the only, I've been asked that many times. I mean, when you, when you poll a state and it says that 
the state is going for Hillary, Pennsylvania, for example, and then it turns out going for Trump, the only answer that I can give is that there obviously was a hidden Trump vote out there. And, you know, when you are branded a uh, basket of deplorables, which really was, it could have been her undoing because that served to energize Trump's base. Mm -hmm. And when the media, I'm going to say, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I, I do believe that the major national networks were in the tank for her. I know you probably don't agree with that. No, I, I will but, actually. Yep, yeah, but, um, you know, when, when, when Trump voters are depicted as uh, individuals with poor temperament, uh, Islamophobic, uh, racist, misogynists, and so forth, um, then I think a lot of voters that are going to support him are going to keep their intentions kind of close to the vest. And even if they're polled, they might say they're undecided mm -hmm. or maybe even intentionally mislead the pollster and say they're going to vote for Hillary. So Trump always said there was this so-called Brexit vote that was out there, mm -hmm. you know, that it was under the surface. As you know, Brexit, uh, the British people, the polls showed they were going to stay in the EU when in fact they, uh, the vote it was close, but nevertheless yeah. they, they, they decided to, to leave the EU. So I think there was a Brexit vote to this in that the, um, I think a lot of voters, simply because of the way that Trump voters were uh, denigrated by so many people in the media and the Hillary Hillary's campaign, you know, simply kept their intentions uh, private. Hey, look, you know, let's face it, if you're in a union, right? Mm -hmm. Unions are strong Democrats. They've been with, you know, Bill Clinton and supposedly they were endorsing Hillary. But if you're a union worker and you really have no use for, for Hillary and you found Trump's message of change pretty appealing, I seriously doubt that you're going to tell people how you're going to vote. I'm going to agree with you. I'm also going to disagree with you on that okay, point. Okay, good. True political science fashion. Um, I do agree with you. I think... I think, honestly, Trump's candidacy has been treated as such like a shock and almost as a joke, even after he won the Republican nomination against one of the most qualified fields of candidates in modern history. I think people just somehow could not take him seriously, and I think there was a factor where, yes, you know, there was, there was you know, kind of a skepticism or denigration or, you know, a little bit of condescension towards his supporters, you know, being rural, racist, Islamophobic, right. like you said, the yep. basket of deplorables label, I kind of... <laughs> yeah. Yep. kind of did stick with them. I think there was also a factor of no one could really imagine Trump actually winning. No. Even, you know, the polls were closed, but we're all like, Hillary's going to pull this one out. Yeah, I know. There's no way that this, you know, somewhat bombastic, kind of unpredictable reality TV star, literally reality TV <laughs> could break star, the blue wall. could possibly, yeah, like, right. overtake, you know, a former secretary of I state know. who has been building her political right. influence for decades. So I, I agree. Well, I will say this. In this election year, a long political resume was oh, a liability. Killed you. Killed a liability. Um, so I'm going to agree that I think the, I think there was sort of the, the media did kind of contribute, but I think it was just a lot of people, especially, I mean, you know, I hate to use these kinds of labels, but the, co the coastal elites who just couldn't really, couldn't really stomach this as like a real, real campaign. I mean, I think it was... I want to say the Huffington Post back in like 2015 when Trump first declared, they refused to even publish anything about his campaign. They said it was entertainment. They right? put it in the entertainment section. Yeah, right. I don't know if or when they changed that policy, but they refused, they were like, there's no way. This is a publicity stunt. Right, right. So I, I know. I agree with there's a media factor, but I don't think it was necessarily 
denigrating his supporters as thoroughly as you'd think. But I think okay. it was kind of this, this skepticism towards Trump. Like, he was never seen as a real candidate until, oh, my God, he's the president-elect. <laughs> now, somebody the other day told me, oh, but, you know, I don't know how you could say the media was against him because they gave him so much free media time. And they it is did. true he got... He Billions. Got, uh, he got over a billion dollars worth of free media. That's true. But my response to that was, well, sure, they, gave, they covered his rallies, but it was the narrative... The narrative of the rallies, mm-hmm. you know, which which I think in many ways was unfair. I mean, you know, a fistfight breaks out, right? Well, right away, the Trump voters are like world wrestling people, you know, unstable people that uh, that uh, you know these these white working class people that they are volatile. The and then it turns and then it turns out, and it seemed like it was a, a story that was covered, you know, on uh, page ten when the facts came out that it was actually. The Clinton campaign that was instigating some of the violence. Yes, there were that paid, was documented. Paid protesters. The paid protesters mm-hmm. to start that mm-hmm. in order to make Trump's rallies look volatile. Mm-hmm. But how many people really heard about that? And then, of course, uh, it is true those grotesque uh, comments he made, you know, on the uh, the bus with Billy Bush, um, and and those were terrible. And I agree, it was you know the video, but. Compare the coverage of what he said to the coverage of WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. okay, which 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 uh, obviously showed that Hillary Clinton and that there was a real possibility of a pay per, pay for play scheme going on when she was Secretary of State. So you know the WikiLeaks story was on page ten, the video of Bush is on page front one. page. Yeah, so I, that's what I'm saying. I don't see how it was fair coverage. And I think that a lot of the vo- some of the voters out there maybe had reservations about Trump, but they were also voting against the media. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's actually a great debate, too, because we, we've talked about this before, you know, kind of the, the, the very slippery scale of ethics in the media at this point. Yeah, I think with really. Donald Trump, yeah. and Donald Trump, I think, is really hard to really pin down because, he, you know, he wasn't a policy guy in the slightest. He no. really... He, he said it like whatever was in his head. He really didn't polish himself at all. So sometimes it was a little hard to interpret what he was trying to say. So when he th- says, you know, things like Mexicans are rapists, yeah. you know, in the media, I think it'd be hard if I was covering that. Like, to me, that's something terribly unethical to say. That's oh, terribly, yeah. sure you know, yeah. maybe he didn't, I know. you know, it's, it's racist. You know, as a media, how do you, like, if you take that seriously as a mainstream politician saying, I think it's a hard line to cover. And I think we actually saw this with Facebook as well. Facebook actually had some issues. They had a lot of issues this election cycle. But they had issues where they actually were accidentally censoring Trump posts because Donald Trump, like, his own campaign and his own Facebook page were putting stuff up that they deemed racist or or, uh, homophobic or Islamophobic. And I think that's a hard line to walk. You know, and I think it even plays more into this, you know, the liberal media. Like, yes... But what's the line there? If you see someone, a politician, a mainstream politician saying something, but that if anyone else was saying it, you would be deemed yeah. somehow phobic or offensive, what do you do? Yeah, I know. It, it, it's tough. It's a dilemma. It really is. It's mm-hmm. a dilemma. I think that the, uh, the final story on this has not been written yet about, about, about whether or not the media um, was, was fair and objective. If you do look at, you know, the way that the debates were run, I don't know. Do you think Lester Holt was really fair when he when he did his questions? Do you think that um, Martha Raddatz and uh, Anderson Cooper were really that objective? I, I quite frankly thought that Chris Wallace was, without a doubt, the uh, probably the most objective of all the, uh, the debate moderators. 
So, um, I don't know. I mean, I sensed it. I don't know if there's been an empirical study done yet. There will be. Oh, but in many. the end, But in the end, we'll probably get some, some, some hard figures on this. Look, I've, I've got some figures here I want to share with our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I know you're familiar with them because it's all part of my oh, extensive research been, project, which, which, been which we've been working on here for a long time. Let's talk about what Let's happened. Talk about exit polls, everybody. Your favorite exit polls. And we have them. Now, a very interesting, yes, and a very interesting finding here is that in election year 2008, uh, when Barack Obama was first elected, there were 69.5 million Democrats at the polls. That... Uh, dropped by about 4 million in uh, 2012. But in 2016, uh, from 2012 to 16, it dropped by 6 million, which, is, which means 10 million fewer Democrats from 2008 voted, 6 million fewer from 2012. Uh, so when we talk about how you know we had this big uprising that occurred, I do contend there was an uprising. But I think we also have to be realistic here, knowing that Hillary also lost this election herself. She did not inspire people, to, her, her base, to come to the polls. Do you think this, what do you think played more of a factor here? You know, she was not, an, she was not a charismatic candidate. She was not an inspiring candidate. But was it also some backlash against Obama? Is this kind of a rebellion against people who feel like his hope and change didn't reach didn't their communities? Out. Yeah, that's a good point. Even though his approval ratings are like 51%, 52%, I think that, you know, the American people really, and we do have a couple exceptions like, you know, Reagan Bush, mm-hmm. but the American people after a two-term presidency seem to seek change. There's really not a lot of third ter- party no, third terms. No, it's very in, rare. In it's that. very rare for a political party to to get a third term in the White House, and I'm not so sure it was absolute disgruntlement with 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 Obama, but nevertheless, people just felt that things were were not progressing as well as that perhaps they could. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know how in the end he's going to be rated by presidential scholars. But um, I think people felt that, nevertheless, despite the fact that a majority of people said that he was doing a fairly good job, I think people still felt there could, that more could be done. Look, I mean, look at the annual rate of economic growth in this country. It is like uh, two two percent. I mean, that is just incredibly bad. It's low, and if that's the new normal, then you know you can understand why people say, "Come on, this country can do better than that." Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of Democrats didn't show up, um, and essentially. Not only that, but among those who, um, you know, uh, if, if you look at the way that a lot of the individuals voted in this elect- election, if you compare Hillary Clinton's uh, vote to Barack Obama's, you will see almost routinely in practically every demographic, uh, she did less well compared to him. Mm-hmm. You know, here are uh, Obama's, Obama got 39% of the white votes, Hillary Clinton gets 37%. Mm-hmm. Um, Barack Obama gets 93% of the African-American votes. Hillary Clinton gets 88%. That's a five-point drop. Among Latinos, who supposedly was going to, they were really going to turn they out with her in a big like way, Arizona right? Yeah, yeah. Obama gets 71% of the Latino vote, and uh, Hillary Clinton gets only 65%. Wow. A six-point drop. And by the way, I think you might find it interesting that Donald Trump actually did better than Mitt Romney among Latinos by two points. I think this is really interesting, actually. Um, if you compare the percentage of the vote that Mitt Romney and Donald Trump won, Mitt Romney won 47.2% of the vote in 2012. 
Donald Trump won 47.1% of the vote. In about the same thing. I about think it's really thing. interesting to see that. You can see how much voter turnout makes a difference, and you yeah. can also see how much, you know, the Electoral College can be a factor in these Oh, oh totally, yeah. We can talk about that in a moment. A couple of uh, other areas where Hillary really underperformed compared to Obama. Um, your generation, the millennials, 18 to 29. We don't vote, though. Obama <laughs> gets 60%. Uh, Hillary gets 54% of their vote. Women voters, wasn't that, weren't women voters supposed to be really the key to Hillary's election? They banked on Hillary. And it, the whole thing was, you know, there's no way that Trump can win. Well, guess what? Women voters, Obama 55%, Hillary Clinton 54% among women voters. Trump, believe it or not, gets two points higher than Mitt Romney among women voters. How do you explain that? You know? I think this. I think this cycle we really saw is a difference between socioeconomic classes and education. Because if you look at um, college-educated women, she actually did win college-educated women. Yeah, she did. Yes. I think that was much more of a factor. And actually, I did see a statistic this morning where if you look at white young women, you know me. Yeah. She won sixty-two percent to thirty-two percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- she did. Well. It wasn't necessarily a, a woman's vote, which I think is great in a lot yeah. of ways, and I think the women's vote is such a broad term, it's kind of ridiculous know, to use it. I know. You know, we've, we've been talking for a long time about a racial divide, a gender divide, and so forth. There's a new divide that showed up. I was reading, and it's not my term. I can't remember whose term it was. We now have the diploma divide. It really, it truly yeah. was. That yeah. was the deciding factor yeah. in this election. Yeah, yeah, that seems to now be one of the real major divisions within our electorate. Um, And interestingly enough, uh, a lot of the people without diplomas, if you will, and again, I'm not speaking negatively about them. I have great respect for people who don't go to college, trust me on that. Um, Neither of my parents went to college. Um, Interestingly enough, they're voting Republican. What I think is really interesting Mm -hmm. is I think, you know, for the last four or five cycles, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been watching this much more closely than I have the last four or five cycles, Um, but we've been kind of gearing up, we as, you know, political parties have been gearing up towards this new America that would be, you know, racially diverse, Uh, it'd be religiously diverse, it would be lifestyle-wise, it'd be more diverse, and I think both Democrats and Republicans have been trying to prepare themselves for that new divide. Yeah. Yet, no one really expected this. The diploma yeah. divide, at least in this election, overcame those new racial, ethnic, religious, Great point. lifestyle divides. Great point. I think that's that's really now what we're going to start looking at. You know, you stand in front of audiences and they, they, they ask you to predict how various groups are voting, you know. <laughs> and I think really now it. now what it's, what it's coming down to is we used to be able to say, well, if we know you know, certain demographic traits about somebody, we can pretty much predict, you know, what their voting patterns are going to be. Now what it is is you'd have to know the educational experience of the individual, the level. That seems to be probably one of the most powerful predictors now. Do you think that will break down? Because obviously didn't, you know, Hillary Clinton won 93% of the African-American vote. It's not necessarily breaking down all racial divides yet. Do you think it will? Not at all. Um, Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think among certain groups of voters, African-Americans, um, probably not. Mm-hmm. I think even even those who have gone to college, and I'm sure among that figure, many have, you know. Um, I think that among African-American voters, there's still that historic connection to the Democratic Party. Well, historic, 
since since the 40s and 50s. That's historic, right? Yeah. Certainly not in the 19th century. African Americans used to be Republicans, but but you know the connections that they've had since World War II, I think, is is so strong, really, so strong. Any other trends that you see in the data that really stood out to you this right. time around? Because yes. this was such an unpredictable demographic switch. Demographic switch. Yeah, yeah, it's a demographic switch, and and let's take a look at some some things that are going on here. Now, it's no surprise that urban voters, you know, went another with major divide that is another major divide. Urban voters certainly went with um, with Hillary Clinton at fifty nine percent, but look, look look at the rural voters. Um, we're looking at the figures here for our for our listeners out here. We have exit poll data, and this is by the way the first set of exit. Um, poll data I cited was from CNN and also um, the election pool, national election pool. Now I'm looking at some exit poll data from the New York Times. 59% urbanites voted for uh, Hillary, only 35% for Trump, but get this figure. Among rural voters, 62% went with Trump, largely because I think rural America is really hurting. You know, urban areas actually are coming up in income, and if you recall, one of our previous podcasts with students that we've done, mm-hmm. uh, we did. We, uh, they were citing studies of how cities are showing rises in per capita income, but among rural Americans, apparently a lot of them really are feeling that they've been left behind, and I think they were speaking out. Rural America spoke here. Well, that's what I think is really interesting. Um, I was looking at a New York Times story today on the two Americas, and they focused on the rural and the urban. If you yeah. took Trump's America, it actually would make up 80% of the land mass of the U.S. continent. That's interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. 80% of the, of, land mass. of the land is of our American land is owned by Trump voters. Are we calling it Trump's America now? Trump's I don't know. Trump's voters, Trump's America, <laughs> Trump's constituents. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Eighty um, percent of the land mass. Eighty percent of the American land mass. That's that's a great. And that's really figure. interesting. That's fascinating. I'd like to see that. Picture, I'll send it that, to you. But it's, I'd like that. Yes. It's fascinating. They actually yeah. break it down. They show like America. If it was only Trump's America, that's like it's fairly familiar to the U.S. Yeah. And then there's like random like there's like a lake in Colorado now, right, and right. like random pockets, and like Hillary Clinton looks like. She's like ruling over Indonesia or something. It's like scattered <laughs> islands. Yeah, right. Where right. the Amer- where the American landmass should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, the exit poll data from New York Times showed, of course, not surprisingly, that uh, Democrats and Republicans, you know, are diametrically opposed to one another in their voting behavior. Not a lot of uh, crossover voting, apparently. Uh, with 89% of Democrats voting for Hillary and 90% of Republicans voting for Trump. That figure Shocker. is interesting, and I'll tell you why, because there was a time there where many felt that um, Trump was losing a significant portion of the Republican vote. Remember that? Yeah. And there was a time where, uh, actually, he was only polling about 70% among Republicans. It does appear, at least based on these exit polls, I mean, Democrats were always loyal. There was never any question about them defecting. But all this talk of Republican defectors didn't happen. No, they came home. They came home. And I think to me that's really interesting. I, you know, purely anecdotal data, but I did speak to a few close friends who are Republicans, but were not Trump supporters. And coming up the last few weeks towards the election, and they said, you know what, I can't justify putting my vote in Gary Johnson just to make a statement. I know. I can't possibly vote for Hillary Clinton. Like, I don't know if Trump is really who I am. I don't know. I don't think he really support is, you know, quite what I would have wanted to see in my nominee. 
but I don't think I have another choice. And I think that's another reason maybe polling went wrong, is I think a lot of these Republicans who came home, so to say, I think they made their choice very late in the game. You're probably right on that. I suspect you're right. Unaffiliated voters, almost evenly divided, you know, uh, 42, 45. Same thing with the suburban voters, which I didn't mention before. There was only a five-point difference there mm-hmm. with uh, between Trump and Hillary. Nothing to really talk about, I mean, in terms of any trend, at least. Yeah. So it really is the urban-rural, you know, division, and then Democrat, Republican is where you find the deep division, not among re- uh, unaffiliated voters. Yeah. But I do find this figure interesting. There was, there was a lot of concern, if you recall, w- among evangelicals with Donald Trump. Yes. You know, married three times, and of course His some minister of... minister was divorced, fun fact. Some of the... Several times. Some of the, uh, the vulgar statements that, of course, he's associated, that he was associated with during the campaign. Nevertheless, among those who are white evangelicals, 81%. 81%. They voted, came home. Voted for Trump. Yeah, they did. They did. So I know, uh, I think there are some pastors out there that are attributing his election to the, to their vote. Everybody likes to claim you know, that they we were, they were the ones home. that put him across the finish line. But you can't discount that. There are a lot of evangelical voters out there. I don't, I don't have the raw number in front of me, but when, when I see 81% of, e, of evangelicals voting. That's, and especially in rural communities. Yeah, that's right. That's big. That's big. Married, uh, what do we see here with marital status? Um, big difference there. Um, those couples that are married, I should say, you know, those that are married, 53% voted for, uh, for Donald Trump, while those who are not married, 55% voted for uh, Hillary Clinton. So there's a difference in terms of the marriage issue, too. Well, do you think that's more of a factor of age and maybe sexual orientation? I don't know, maybe. If you can't get married. Yeah, I'd like to see some cross-tabs on that. That's yeah. A, that's a really good And so I feel like point. marital status alone wouldn't determine. I think that's more of an age Not and maybe a okay. sexual All right. orientation. In terms of issues, um, what did the New York Times exit poll find? Well, 60% of Hillary's voters said that foreign policy was the most important, um, while uh, only... Thirty-four percent of Trump's voters said foreign policy was the number one issue. Mm-hmm. But then, when it comes to immigration, it was almost the opposite. Thirty-two percent of Hillary's voters felt that was the number one issue. Sixty-four percent of Trump's voters said that was a num- their, uh, a key a key issue to them. Build that wall. Yep. As far as the economy goes, fifty-two eh, percent of Hillary's voters said that was you know a key issue. Also. Forty-two percent uh, said that uh, of Trump voters said the economy was was really a main issue. And that actually them. surprises me quite a bit because I know Trump made a big deal about you know repealing NAFTA, repealing the TPP. Why like that stands out to me that you know a lot of these com- people who voted for Trump are people who are in rural communities that are struggling economically. Why do you think they didn't attribute the economy as a major issue? Yeah, I know. I I I was a little surprised at looking at this that. Only 42% of Trump's voters, you know, um, identified um, the economy as, as um, or perceived the economy, you know, as, as so critical. I know, and, and the economy, I felt, at least, uh, you know, in the, um, the Rust Belt states in particular, I thought that that was the driving force, you know, behind a lot yeah. of their voting behavior. Yeah, yeah, so 
um, you would think that uh, that the percentage would be much much higher um, but nevertheless it seemed like most of them were were more connected to immigration than anything mm-hmm. they thought immigration was really critical and when asked you know how important is terrorism uh, 57 percent also I, of Trump voters said terrorism only 39 percent said among Hillary's voters said terrorism was 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 one of the most important issues. Mm-hmm. A little surprising, yeah. don't you think? I don't think about so. terrorism. I think Donald. I mean, Trump's, it's a very real issue out there. I think, but I think Donald Trump's candidacy has been very connected. You know, it's been a fear vote as a little bit too. I mean, we saw him really spike during the primaries after the Paris attacks. Yeah. I yeah. think, I think if you're afraid, and I think maybe if you are, if you know, you see terrorism every day. You're you're seeing a lot of these attacks happening. I think it is tied to immigration with the Syrian refugee crisis, and I think it is something that what you would tie very heavily into a man who says he's going to fix it. I just am surprised, though, that someone who was Secretary of State, a U.S. senator from New York, and who was 9/11. a U.S. senator during 9/11, exactly, that only 39 percent of her voters felt that terrorism was one of the most important issues out there. Well, maybe they felt, if you, you know, generally I think it's safe to assume that most Clinton supporters are Obama supporters, and if you felt like Obama's strategy has been effective in dealing with terrorism and you feel like she would have an effective background, maybe that wouldn't be as much of a concern. You feel like the problem is already on the mend. If you're a Trump supporter and you really are diametrically opposed to Obama and Clinton's ideas, then you feel like it is still a very relevant issue. That's very true. Um, one last uh, bit of data here from the exit poll that I have in front of me. They asked the, the voters uh, about the wall, building the wall. That wall. Yeah, yeah. Emblematic of Trump. Now, um, 76% of Trump's voters definitely favor building a wall. No surprise. Eighty-six percent of Hillary's voters oppose building the wall. So when I see these figures, I mean, he has a mandate to go forward with that. And the question is, um, when is when is he going to? How how soon is that wall going to go up? He's got to build a wall. They want a wall. Well, it might be a fence in some places. It's up for discussion apparently. But I think it's interesting because didn't George W. Bush build, try to build a wall? Thought we already tried this. Yeah, wall I think thing. we have tried, and actually there have... are parts parts of it I believe do contain a wall. I think yeah, uh, I think yeah. he tried building a wall. Yeah. And I think some of the wall was built, but I think it got too expensive. Yeah, yeah, um, I know. This is but but remember, Mexico is supposed to pay for this. I I you know as much as I'm sure Trump is a skilled negotiator, but I'm not sure Mexico is going to swallow that it's one. Going to pay for it? I don't know how he's going to do that. Good luck to Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. But I right. I think we need a backup plan. Yeah. Just, in, just in case Mexico does not want to build a wall for a president that said they were rapists and drug lords. <laughs> well, and uh, let's uh, just kind of get down, uh, get down the home stretch here because in addition to a presidential race... We have a supermajority. We have congressional races that went on too, of course. All 435 members of the House were up and, uh, of course, 34 Senate seats were up. What happened? Um... Well, let's talk about the House briefly. Um, The Republicans did have a comfortable majority heading into the election with 246 seats. Um, 
to the Democrats, uh, 186. There were some vacancies there, too, mm -hmm. which is why it doesn't turn out to be 435, those figures. Uh, for the Democrats to win the, uh, the House of Representatives, they had to flip 30 of the Republican seats. They fell far short of that. They, they only won six new seats. That's it. And so um, they increased their number to 193. Republicans are down to 239. In other words, the House is still very much in the hands of the Republican and Party. Paul Ryan has been elected speaker. And Paul Ryan has been re-elected speaker, right. Over in the uh, the Senate, of course, you know, there was a lot of talk about the Senate um, being possibly in the hands of the Democrats uh, again. That did not happen. Uh, we had 34 Senate uh, contests that took place. 24 of them were held by, 24 of those seats were already held by Republicans, mm -hmm. 10 by Democrats. So the Republicans had to defend 24 seats while the Democrats didn't have so much, uh, so many seats they had to worry about. For the Senate to flip, uh, the uh, Democrats had to win, uh, so assuming Hillary was going to win the presidency, they had, they had to win four seats. But without her winning the presidency, they had to win five. That didn't happen. They, they, the Republicans lost two of the seats to the Democrats, mm -hmm. New Hampshire and Illinois. So the Republicans still have a majority of the Senate, 54 seats to 52. And um, I'm sorry, their, their majority was reduced from 54 to, to, to 52. They still got it. So they still have 52 seats, yeah. So we're looking at working majorities. Mitch McConnell, once again, he'll be you know the majority leader in the uh, Senate. Mm -hmm. The Democrats will have a new uh, minority leader in Chuck Schumer. Yes. That's an interesting development. We'll see how he leads compared to Harry Reid. And then I know just to, uh, to really bring closure to this, um, I won't go through all the state races that occurred, but I think it is important to know that uh, 86 state legislative chambers were also up for re-election, which uh, accounted for 87%. This is from Ballotpedia, which does great work on states. Mm -hmm. uh, accounted for 87% of all state legislative seats across the country. Uh, as a result of this election, uh, the Republican Party um, now controls 75% of state Senate chambers and 63% of state House chambers. And moreover, we have um, half of the states are experiencing what we call a trifecta. Don't forget we had 12 gubernatorial contests too. Mm -hmm. um, and 25 have a, tri have a Republican trifecta where the, the state is in the hands of a Republican governor. And there's 33 Republican governors out there now. Yeah. But in 25 of the states, you have a Republican governor, Republican state senate, Republican state chamber. And in only six of the states, is there a Democratic trifecta? Mm -hmm. So, and then, of course, as we know, we can bring closure here by pointing out that Donald Trump is also going to uh, appoint the next Supreme Court justice, right? Yeah. So if you put it all together... The Republicans haven't made for the, the next Republicans haven't lined up to really initiate sweeping change. Mm -hmm. So the question is, will they? And what? I'll end on that question. I think my question to you is, okay, all right. who do you see, like whose agenda is going to happen here? It's like we have Donald Trump, of course, but Donald Trump wasn't exactly known for having a very well-rounded agenda. He didn't really have one. He had a few policies, but nothing really that concrete. He's going to come into, you know, Paul Ryan, who's been pushing his mm -hmm. own uh, political checklist yeah. for a while now his hashtag a better way on twitter all the time 
Um, you have Mitch McConnell, who's obviously been in the Senate for a while, who's going to have his own ideas. He has Mike Pence, who is a social conservative, yeah, sure. has a very strong, yeah. uh, you know, push for what he'll believe. That's right. Yeah. You know, what is a, we don't know what a Trump agenda looks like, but based on all these factions coming down at him, you know, you have Steve Bannon, who hasn't been in elected office, but definitely has his own political views yeah. and his own things he'd like to see happen. Yeah. What does a Trump agenda look like? What's yeah. going to happen? Well, I think I think in the end, you know, so much that he campaigned on, I do think you're going to see some some major reforms. Uh, he's going to go after Obamacare. He's going to keep parts of it. I think you're going to see immigration reform, and I also think you're going to see tax reform. Mm-hmm. I think that the corporate tax rate will be uh, reduced. Um, we were discussing this in class the other day. I know that he wants to reduce corporate taxes from 30% to 15 mm-hmm. Many say that's a little unrealistic, but I think you're going to see some certainly efforts at doing that. So I think if he's smart, he'll do it piecemeal, not, not submit this massive smorgasbord of proposals at once. That was Jimmy Carter's problem. I think he should follow, follow Ronald Reagan's lead and do it incrementally, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's how you really get change done. So I, I honestly feel you're going to see uh, a lot of changes, and I, I've been telling people I think that we're in for a, uh, a pretty historic uh, first 100 days, maybe not along the lines of a Roosevelt, you know, uh, in his first uh, 100 days, but nevertheless, I think you're going to see some some big things happening here that are consistent with that are consistent with some of his promises and rhetoric. And I know uh, I think today we just had we received news that the Senate, the Congress is gearing up to pass a trillion dollar infrastructure plan from well, Donald Trump. There's another one. There's I should have I should have added that. Infrastructure is going to be at the top uh, of I, that list as well. I should as have added that healthcare. too. Thank you for saying that. I think you're going to that's a spending issue of course. But on, this, on the same hand, he does like to build things, doesn't he? And <laughs> so bridges, he... roads, a lot of inf- infrastructure probably is coming too. And certainly, you know, people have said, are any of his issues, um, are, are any of them going to be appealing to Democrats? Well, the answer is infrastructure is. Well, I think actually it's... It creates a lot of jobs for constituents, Democrat and Republican. And I think Great that's point, very reassuring to me, uh, coming from the more democratic side of things, at least professionally, is we do have our leaders. You know, Chuck Schumer's already going, and he's like, I'm willing to work with the Trump administration. They're ready to go in. Nancy Pelosi, although her career is, or her uh, leadership in the House is questionable at this moment. Yeah, she's being challenged. She is being challenged. No one's declared yet, but yeah, right. um, she is being challenged, and a lot of people are ready to replace her. She also is saying, you know, let's get to work. Yeah. Let's make something happen. This is not what we wanted, right? But we have to get in the trenches on this. Well, sure. Well. And and the Democrats need Trump more than he needs them. You know, they're going to have to reach out to him, mm-hmm. and he's got the power of veto. He's got the majority in both chambers. Um, and if they want to get any of their bills passed, or if they want to go back home to their constituents and claim victories, they're going to have to at least accommodate some of his changes, some of his proposals. So we'll see. And I think, honestly, if you're going to have someone, you know, if you're going to have someone in the White House of the Republican Party, in some ways Trump is the best thing they could have had because the Republican Party does have a lot of different factions and different ideologies within its umbrella. And Trump doesn't really belong to any of them, and yet he doesn't really have enemies in any of them. So in a lot of ways he's, you know, he might have been the the best thing that could have happened to them should they be in the situation because he can deal with all of them you're right and not really alienate anyone at least from the get-go that's a great point he's not associated with any one particular tribe within the party 
Mm-hmm. And there are about five tribes. And he, has, he kind of transcends all of them. And he kind of has people coming in from all of them. I think he yeah. needs a libertarian still. Uh-huh. I don't think he's got a libertarian in his circle no, that's yet. That's true. But, yeah. you know, we'll see. Yeah, I know. Rand Paul's already spoken out uh, against against some of his, yes. his positions. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be an interesting, it's going to be interesting seeing what happens next year when Donald Trump's inaugurated. We already see bits of his agenda coming forward. No one expected this, but it's going to be an interesting few years, America. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Let me just say before we, we turn off here that um, in January or February, once the Trump presidency is in motion, after the inauguration, I intend to uh, conduct two, maybe three podcasts on the Trump presidency, and we're going to build those in the tradition of Roosevelt. We're going to build those as fireside chats here at Sacred Heart University. And hopefully some of you will tune in and listen to not just what I have to say, but also, um, of course, Bridget. And we're going to have some other students gathered around the fireplace uh, re- reflecting on, um, on the leadership of... Uh, President the, Donald J. Trump. President Donald Trump, the mogul from Manhattan. Yes. So we will see. We all right. will see. Well, thank you for tuning in. We've had an incredible journey speaking to all of you and following this election. It's been a wild ride, and we're really thrilled and excited that we got to share it with all of you. So thank you. Take care.